In 2007, this journey kind of began for us as a church. My older sister, Kim, was killed in a bicycling accident. Uh, she was killed on the scene, so there was no sort of uh, promise of hope. I just got a phone call from my dad, and he told me that Kim had been hit by a semi-truck and she'd been killed. And about 20 minutes after getting the phone call, and 20 minutes of hysteria and weeping and crying out to God, no, no, the Lord delivered to me a message from my sister, and the message was very simple, ask them to consider. From that time until now, that's what I've been doing, asking people to consider. And so we started a church because we wanted to figure out what is it like to be a community that considers together, that we're not alone in processing through our doubts and our confusions and our questions about who is God, who is his son, Jesus Christ, is the gospel true? Is there real hope? And so now we're going into our eighth month as a church and our first fall. And fall's an exciting time because new rhythms are starting back up. And so I just want to say thank you for being here. Thank you for coming and considering with us in community we have a unique saying here at Sedaris that we believe is completely true. No matter where you stand with God this evening, whether you're far or near, whether you have complete doubt or complete confidence in who he is and what he's done, whether you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins or you don't even know if Jesus Christ was a real human being, wherever you are on the spectrum, God, I believe, has brought you here to this room tonight to consider something. And so no matter where you start, as long as you're faithful and honest to consider that which he brings to your mind and your heart, I believe, and we say here at Sedaris, you are worshiping him. We say consideration is the beginning of worship. And so thank you for worshiping with us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the chance to come together as a community, as a family, as brothers and sisters, to consider truth, to consider the claims of Scripture, to consider whether or not your Son died for our sin, that we might have renewed relationship with you, that we might have life to the full, that we get to consider that together and we don't have to do it alone and we can come and ask questions and doubt together and hope together and dream together. That is a beautiful blessing and we thank you for it. We pray tonight that you would speak to us with that unique message that you have for each of us, that whatever is of you would stick with us throughout today and tomorrow and into the week and that which is not what might pass away. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the phrase, a person of faith? I hate that phrase. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's right here in my notes. I hate that phrase. I think people use it as a differentiating mark between peoples. Maybe in politics we see we need to reach persons of faith with our messaging and our marketing. Or we need to appeal to a certain segment of society we call persons of faith. 
I'm a person of faith, yes. But I believe every human being is a person of faith. In fact, I believe that God has made us, he's created us, he's crafted us to be persons of faith. And so the reason that I hate that saying is because it's trying to distinguish between persons of faith and persons not of faith. I don't believe that distinction exists. There are just human beings who are persons of faith and no other kind of human being. If you go to bed expecting to wake up in the morning, you're a person of faith. If you send a letter in the mail and you expect the person you've sent it to to receive the mail, then you're living by faith. You're a person of faith. To live by faith is to trust in any future that is yet to be seen. Any future that is yet to be experienced. We are trusting in promises that things or people make to us. And that's what it means to live by faith. So we're all persons of faith. Now here's the crux of the issue. Whose promises do we trust? What things do we trust to deliver the promises that they claim to deliver? And by asking these questions, we begin to understand then what is the object of our faith. Who is the promissory? Is it an impersonal system or natural law? Is it an institution, another human being? Perhaps it's a political leader. Is it a type of relationship that we put our trust in? Is it some financial goal that if we reach it will give us everything that we want? Is it the American dream? Is it capitalism? Is it democracy? Is it this idea of evolution? Is it Hollywood's depiction of the fairy tale ending? What are we trusting in? Whose promises do we believe will satisfy the deepest part of who we are? Where and what we trust. That's where our faith is. All human beings at all times are people of faith. This is nothing new. This is the way it's been going since the beginning. And uh, there's a great book that I'm reading now. It's incredibly long, so I'm just beginning, so don't ask me how it ends. It's called City of God. And it's written by St. Augustine. Augustine lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D. in North Africa. He was a Roman citizen. He ended up becoming later in his life. He did not grow up a Christian, but he became a Christian and became one of the most influential Christians of all time. Probably outside of the apostles themselves, his writings had more of an effect on the Christian faith than anyone else. And one of his classic works, one of the classic books of all antiquity, is The City of God. And what's interesting is that Augustine began to write The City of God just after Rome had been sacked by the Goths. Now the Goths were not trench coat wearing death metal groupies. They were actually people from Central Europe uh, barbarians, some might have called them, and they're led by this cat named Alaric. 
Now here's the importance of this event. This is why this event is so important. And it led Augustine to write The City of God. Up to that time, Rome, for centuries and centuries, was thought to be indestructible, immune from attack. It was thought to be the eternal city. Nothing and no one could touch Rome. The empire would be around forever. But now look. It seems to be vulnerable. It seems to be falling apart. I mean, they were defeated by a guy named Alaric. So what do we do? And the people began to ask themselves some serious questions. They began to have a crisis of faith. The empire, which they had found their identity, which they had found their security, their hope, was beginning to show its true colors. Perhaps it wasn't as indestructible as they had thought. Questions were being asked. What does it mean now to be a Roman citizen? Can we trust the promises of citizenship to protect us? Is the Roman Empire able to deliver us in time of need? What about this peace and this prosperity that had always been associated with being a citizen of Rome? What about that? Can we trust the old gods of the Roman pantheon, Jupiter, Juno, Venus, Mars, the whole gang? Can they be trusted? Up until this point, it was just assumed that the Roman Empire would go on into the future. They would always be the big kid on the block. They would always be the most powerful. No one could touch them. They were just too strong. And so it was easy to place your trust in the promises of being a Roman citizen. And against this background of uncertainty that was very new to the Roman Empire, Augustine began to write The City of God. And in it, he talks about these two cities, these two options for citizenship. Do we want to be a citizen of the city of God, or do we want to be a citizen of the other city? And the other city is the city of man, the city of this world. And Augustine unpacks what are the promises of each of these cities, why are the promises of each city worthy of being trusted whose city shall we choose now of course for Augustine the old gods and the government of the empire the citizenship of Rome paled in comparison to what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom a citizen of the city of God in which the promises of the one true God of the Christian scriptures would prove to be far greater than the other city. Now Augustine knew that all people are people of faith, persons of faith. And so he asked the question, who will you trust? Whose promises will you believe in? In whom and whom shall have your faith? So this is not a new problem. This is the age-old question. And it's no different than the dilemma of the book that we're about to dive into, which is the book of Hebrews. For the next 12 weeks or so, we will be studying the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is asking us the same question. Whose promises 
are worthy of trust. In whom shall you have your faith? And so today what I want to do, we're actually not even going to be in the book of Hebrews. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. There are Bibles, if you don't have them on the end of your row, you'll see them in a stack. You can grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those. It's a gift from us to you. You can also look it up on your phone if you prefer that method. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there with me. And we'll get to Acts chapter 2 in just a second. But before we do, I want to give you a layout of the book of Hebrews. There are two pieces of background information that I want to talk about tonight that will sort of set us up for the next 12 weeks as we study this amazing book. Now there are several reasons to read Hebrews. Many people are scared of it because as you'll see we'll get into it. There's tons of Old Testament references. There's a lot of deep theology. And some of the reasons, the rich reasons to study Hebrew is seeing how as Christians do we appropriate the Old Testament into the New. How should we read the Old Testament in light of the New? And so Hebrews will help us to do that. There's rich theology, rich Christology. Who is this Jesus Christ? All of this is in Hebrews. But I think the most important piece of Hebrews, the most important question that Hebrews will ask and answer that all humanity faces is this. How can we actually approach God? And what we'll see in Hebrews is aligned with what the rest of the New Testament teaches, and it will show that, in fact, the Old Testament has teach the same thing, and it's the great Protestant exclamation, sola fide, which is Latin for by faith alone. But as I was thinking about that, I realized that's something that we as Christians throw out a lot. But what does faith really mean? Hebrews helps us to answer that. In who or in what do we put our faith in? And why does this faith work for our good? So you might ask yourself, uh, you might have seen this. Why does Dave have a Slurpee up here? It's really good. Uh... Go ahead and just take five seconds and tell the person next to you your favorite Slurpee flavor. I'm just going to take a drink here. Okay. (laughs) Okay, your time's up. (laughs) You see, Slurpees are one of those things that there's so many memories associated with a Slurpee, so... But I want to explain something with the Slurpee. It's just... Not good fun. What we'll see and what we see throughout the New Testament is this. I am me. I don't know if you knew that. God is this Slurpee. The blessings of God are this Slurpee. Relationship with God is this Slurpee. Everything good is in this Slurpee. I think we can all agree. Now how do I, as me, access this goodness. You can't sip it out of the lid. Everybody knows that. Have you tried to do that? You can't do it. You need something, right? This straw is how I'm going to get 
all the Slurpee that I need. This straw is faith, okay? This straw is faith. 36 times we'll see in Hebrews the term faith is used. 36 times. We'll come to the end of the book, chapters 11 to 13, have the famous roll call of faith where it goes through all the Old Testament saints and how it was their faith that connected them to salvation and to God. We'll read about Moses and Abraham, Rebecca and Rahab. We'll read about the whole bunch. And it was this straw, faith, that connected them to God. Let me just get a drink here. Hebrews will say this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You see, we talked about that. Everyone is hoping in something that they cannot see. Hebrews tells us that's faith. But now how does this straw work? How does this straw actually work? Why does it work? Does every kind of straw work? Or just this straw? This faith in Jesus? Hebrews will talk about it. And what I hope also comes out of it is that we'll see why sometimes you're sucking so hard on this straw but nothing is coming out. And we all know what that is, right? You've bent the straw. There's now a crack in the straw but you didn't bring an extra straw. But you know what? I brought tons of extra straws, so we're good to go. Plenty of straws here. How do we fix that cracked straw? Or, why don't I just start putting more and more straws into my Slurpee? Okay, oh, shoot. Now I can drink this even faster. Mm. It's really good, okay. We're going to talk about this straw. For 12 weeks, we're going to talk about why this particular straw <laughs> works. It's going to be a great... You bring your own straws if you want. Bring your own Slurpees. It's going to be a great time. But in Hebrews, we will consider these questions. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? Why does it work? Why is Jesus unique and superior to all other straws so that we can get access to God? That's the great question of Hebrews that we'll hopefully uncover detailed, beautiful nuances to why that's true. So that's where we're headed. And there's these two pieces of information that we need to understand about Hebrews that will help us understand why the book was written in the first place and how we can take some truth away we must understand why it was written and to whom it was written. And that's the first piece of background information, which is this. The book of Hebrews was written, yes, to a different audience than, say, Augustine's Romans, but very similar. It was, in fact, written to Romans. Romans living just decades after Jesus' death and resurrection in the city of Rome. And most of them, scholars will agree, were Jewish Christians, meaning that they had left their Jewish faith to become followers of this way, followers of this Jesus Christ. Hence the term that we have now, the book of Hebrews, for it was written to mainly people of Hebrew descent. 
And their faith was being challenged. Challenged in a similar way to Augustine's Romans that he was writing the city of God to. Picture, if you will, with me a young man, probably in his mid-twenties, named Antonius. He grew up Jewish. His whole life he'd been raised in the synagogue. He'd probably taken trips with his parents, maybe once in his life, back to Jerusalem, to the temple. And he'd grown up reading and learning about this God. And then he came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and he began to follow Jesus. And he's living in Rome. He's now following Jesus. But you know what it's not resulting in? It's not resulting in his peace, his rest, his comfort, or his prosperity. In fact, his employer has ridiculed him. He's lost his job now because they found out that he's a Christian. In fact, many Christians are being jailed, exiled because of their faith in Jesus. His family has disowned him because he has left the Jewish faith to become a Christian. His friends are ridiculing him, probably not his friends anymore, and he's asking himself the question, is it worth it? Are the promises of Jesus worth it? Have I placed my trust in the wrong thing? Imagine how he must be asking himself these questions, and he is a part of the church to which the book of Hebrews is written. Think of the questions that he must be asking himself. Think of the doubt that must be creeping in as he's looking over his shoulder at every turn, wondering if he's going to be the next Christian thrown in jail. He's asking, why don't I just return to my Jewish roots? No Jews are being thrown in jail. My friends would take me back. My family would celebrate. Think of the comforts and the safety the splendor that's represented in the old ways of Judaism. In fact, Christianity didn't offer any of that. There are no real religious trappings for the Christian, not like there were for the Jews. There's no temple. There's just homes. They were meeting in homes. There's no altar, just the table of fellowship. There's no priests. Instead, there's some uneducated fishermen leading the church. There's no sacrifices, just remembering the finished work of Jesus. So what activities do we hang our hat on? What do we do in our religious life to bring comfort? All of this, young Antonius is wrestling with, asking himself, why am I doing this? Is it worth it? And the author of Hebrews is trying to answer that question for Antonius and the rest of the Christians in the church in Rome. Is Christ truly a better sanctuary, a better altar, a better priest, a better sacrifice? Is this new covenant a better covenant? than the one that we've given up. This is the setting for the book of Hebrews. You see how it relates to the same question that Augustine was trying to answer? Is it all true? Is it all worth it? Have we placed our faith in the wrong person or thing or institution or system? And it's no different for us today. We feel that same tug all the time. It might not be to the same level or angst that 
the Hebrews in Rome were feeling when they received this letter. But we can sympathize, right? If you've ever moved to a new city or gone to a new church and you step in to say this church, you might begin to ask yourself some of the same questions. I miss the way we did it at the old church. I like the kind of comfort we had in the masses of being apart and thinking the way everyone else thought. Maybe my old church was a happening place. Maybe it's nice to have top-notch things, a great building. That was pretty sweet. The music and the lights, the sermon was a lot better. The kids' ministry, they had a jungle gym. What about all that history and tradition? It seems like every time I turn around, we're doing some sort of a first celebration. First fall, first baptism. You see, even us in this room, we experience some of that same feeling. Maybe we should go back to that thing of old. Has God really called us to this new thing? And here's the deal. The past will always pull you back. The past will always draw you back, pull at your heels. And it's not just in the life of religious rhythms. It's in whatever brings you security or comfort or happiness or pleasure. In the past, there is much weight. And it draws you back. It pulls you in. We're dealing with this right now with Grayson. He has this little rock and play thing, which is like super cool and like, He loves it. And it's like we try to take him out of that because we know life in the crib is good. All this freedom. But he loves the rock and play. You know what he also loves? Midnight milk. He loves it. He cries for it every night. And we give it to him. Here's what I'm worried about. He'll have these memories of the past, the comfort of the rock and play and the midnight milk. And he won't be able to get away from those and they'll keep drawing him back and he's going to be a 30-year-old man and he's going to be sleeping in a hammock and he's going to be getting up in the middle of the night and making himself a warm glass of milk. No woman's going to marry him. We've got to break these bad patterns. No, No woman wants to live in a hammock. You hear me, Ben? No one, no woman wants to live in a hammock. Okay. Now see, that's a funny example, but it happens in every other part of life as well. What are those things in your own life that draw you back in? And it complicates things when you've left something in order to follow this Jesus character, and things aren't going quite as you hope. Maybe you left a romance because of your new faith in Jesus. Maybe... You're asking yourself, is this relationship with Christ really superior and better than the comfort and the happiness and the companionship I felt felt in this old romance? Maybe it's a job. Maybe you've lost a job due to following Christ. Maybe you refuse to work the insane hours because you believe that a life lived in Christ is a life of balance. Maybe you refused to cheat your way to the top and so you lost your job all because you were a follower of Jesus. Is following Jesus really better than a really nice paycheck and all the comforts that come with that? Listen, I've been there 
And the list could go on. Because the past always draws us back in. Because we've seen it already. And it's so much harder to trust in the unseen promises of Christ when we have these things in the past that have already shown themselves to be at least half good. Well, I'll take that over the unseen. Imagine what it would have been like for the Jews living in Rome in early Christianity. I mean, we're talking persecution. We're talking, we don't even know what's going to happen to this church. In the storm of that uncertainty, this is, how, this is why Hebrews was written. To prove that faith in Jesus is worth it. That his promises are worthy of our trust. And we'll see why as we go through the book. The second piece of background information that we need to understand when we come to the book of Hebrews is this. The letter of Hebrews is not, in fact, a letter or an epistle in the way that many of the other New Testament letters are. In fact, and we'll see as we get into it, it begins with a great declaration of who Jesus Christ is what he is like, and as we go through, you'll say, this doesn't seem like the letters of Paul or Peter or John. This looks a little bit different, and in fact, it is different, because the book of Hebrews is actually a sermon. It's a sermon that was written and given to the church in Rome to be read as a sermon throughout the house communities and the greater Uh, municipality of Rome and so I thought hope you still have your finger there we would look at the very first sermon every ever preached to see some of the similarities that we will see as we go through the book of Hebrews because there's something very special about a sermon that I hope is true of the sermons that we preach that is different from a letter or different from teaching So let's look at this together. Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. And we will read the first sermon ever preached. Now let me give you some context very quickly. Everything in Acts chapter 1 is preparatory for what happens in Acts chapter 2, which we'll see is the coming of the Spirit of God on the community of Christ's followers. Okay? Now here's what's so fascinating. We have to remember this, and it's hard for us to remember this because we're so many years after the fact. After Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to over 500 people and he, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. He taught them about why he had to die and why, uh, the importance of the resurrection. And then, you know what he did? He had to explain to them why he had to go. Jesus, why don't you just stay here and build your kingdom here? We'll build it around you. We'll make you a big uh, political, military leader. We can win the world for you. And Jesus said, no, I actually have to go. And the reason that I have to go is because if I don't go, I can't send to you the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus promises them that when he leaves, he will send his spirit 
to empower them to do the work that he's given them to do. And so we have this uh, incredible, it's hard to even picture what this might have been like. He takes his disciples up onto uh, a mountain, which was really more of a hill. He takes them up, and uh, it's known as the ascension. Something happens to Jesus, and he's caught up into heaven. Now imagine his followers. Okay, he's coming back, right? He was kind of just joking about that. I have to go so I can send. And the day goes by, or hours go by. They're probably still standing there kind of thinking, he's just, he's just fooling with us here. Two hours. It begins to get dark. They say, we better go back to our home. We don't know exactly how long it was, but it was probably days. And Jesus had promised them something. That the Spirit of God would come and empower them. And they had to have faith. Because it hadn't happened yet. This is the context for Acts chapter 2. Pick it up with me. When the day of Pentecost came, this was a Jewish festival. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, promise fulfilled, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, the power of God. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews. Remember, this is so important. The same audience whom the book of Hebrews is written, written to. From every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of them hears each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And look at this, verse 12. Amazed and perplexed. I love that line. They asked one another, what does this mean? God had promised, Jesus had promised, that when he left, he would send his spirit. And he does. And it left them amazed and perplexed. I think that's a great mode of being for us as Christians. We are amazed at the work of God and we're also perplexed. I look out at this crowd, I am amazed and I'm perplexed. Why are you here? What does this mean? Verse 13, some however made fun of them. Sound familiar? And said they have had too much wine. They're drunk. That's why they're speaking in these weird languages. 
Then Peter stood up, the great apostle, up with the eleven. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. An important element of preaching is explanation, and we'll see that in Hebrews. Hebrews will try to explain some serious things to us. Peter said, listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Who drinks at nine in the morning? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this, Peter says. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, he's pointing to the uniqueness of Jesus and the evidence for Jesus' divinity. He explains it. Jesus isn't just an idea. He lived and he walked and he proved his uniqueness. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. I think good preaching talks about the sovereignty of God and his power to accomplish all that he plans and works in the world. That's why he's worthy of our trust. With the help of wicked men, he explains the depravity, our sinfulness, Wicked men who put him to death by nailing him to a cross. He proclaims the cross. But God raised him from the dead. He proclaims the resurrection of Jesus. Freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep him. To keep its hold on him. He explains the implications of the cross and the resurrection. Which is that Jesus proves that he is God that nothing gets in the way of him fulfilling his promises. Then Peter says this, David said about him, speaking of great King David in the Old Testament, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy, the joy of your presence. And we'll see this again and again in Hebrews. He's connecting the Old Testament promises with the fulfillment in the New Testament. God realizes that as we decide whose faith to put, whose hands to put our faith in, that it's important to see that he's been keeping his promises from the beginning. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, Hebrews, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. 
But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He's re-engaging the evidence of the resurrection, the most powerful of all testimonies to the promises of God. Verse 33. This Jesus exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the, F- the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The implications. We now have the Spirit of God. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Be assured of this. Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? Good preaching always leads to action. When you hear of who Jesus is, what he's done, that the promises of God are being fulfilled in him, that's never the end of it. It's just the beginning. It always should lead us to action. And Peter replied, verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the same promised gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is the beauty of the Christian message. Although it's by faith alone that we are saved, this faith is not an abstraction. It's not incapable of being acted out in the present moment. You might say, Dave, I have faith. I have faith. But what does that mean? What shall I do? What would Peter tell you? Repent and be baptized. Which is to say, turn from your sinful ways. You know in your heart of hearts that you're living in rebellion against God. Turn from those ways and turn towards His holiness. Ask forgiveness. Move forward in the new direction. That's what it means to repent. To move forward in a new direction, away from your old life of sin to a life of holiness in God. Repent. And by baptism, he means this. Yes, literal baptism, that is important. We practice that as a community. But baptism is a symbol of something else. Baptism is a public proclamation of your faith in Jesus So turn from your old ways of sin, turn to a life of God, and proclaim publicly that you're following Jesus. That's what it means. That's what Peter tells us to do when the Spirit comes upon us and we realize that Jesus is worthy of our trust. Verse 40. With many other words, 
I love this line because I tend to preach long sermons. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted this message, what does it mean to accept this message? We'll talk about that in weeks to come. Those who accepted this message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Good preaching, we'll see this in Hebrews, leads to an increased faith in Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he actually is, and in accepting the gospel, it changes the way we live. And if you read on in verse 32, it says this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. Everyone was filled with, many, uh, with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. What does this mean? It means that they sold property and everyone had everything in common. You say, well, that doesn't mean we're supposed to do that now, does it? I don't know. But what I do know is that to do that takes incredible faith. To give up some of your stuff to give to somebody else in need takes incredible faith. And the people who had accepted the gospel lived by incredible faith, even selling their own possessions so that everyone would have everything in common. These people trusted the promises of Jesus and it changed the way they live. So maybe this unnerves you. Maybe it's because you're having a crisis of faith. I could never do that. I could never sell my things to give to other. We are all people of faith. We are all trusting the promises of someone or something. I want you to ask yourself, what are you trusting in above all else? And one of the easiest ways to know what that is is by asking yourself this question. What is it that when I consider losing it overwhelms me with fear? What overwhelms you with fear? What does the idea of losing overwhelm you with fear? For the rich man, fears losing his wealth. The educated man fears losing the argument. The athlete fears losing his youth. The politician fears losing his power. For in those things they have placed their faith. Where is your fear? There too you'll find your faith. Now, we're all at different places when it comes to our faith. Do you find yourself discouraged by your lack of faith in Jesus tonight? Do you find yourself questioning your faith in Jesus? Do you find your faith in Jesus is small? Are you finding that it's not bringing you a sense of hope? Do you find yourself being drawn back to something in your past to place your faith in that? To trust the promises of that? 
Perhaps you don't even have any faith at all in Jesus. What are you looking to to find a reasonable object for your faith? Maybe you haven't found it. If you answered yes to any of those questions, Hebrews is written for you. I answer yes to these questions at different moments throughout a year, throughout a month, even in a week, even in a day, I will experience a yes to some of these questions. Hebrews is written to me. And what we'll see when we look at the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we look at the cross, Jesus proves that he will hold nothing back to deliver on his full promises. Nothing will get in his way, not even death itself. He volitionally gave himself up to die to fulfill his promises to humanity. And you know what the resurrection proves? It proves that Jesus is no ordinary man like you or me. It proves that not even death could keep him from fulfilling his promises. It proves that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he was superior to all things. And his power displayed by the resurrection proves that he's worthy of our trust. Who else would you want to put your trust in than someone who loves so much that he'd do whatever it took to fulfill his promises and someone who's so powerful that nothing can stop them from doing what they love? That's Jesus. We're all creatures of faith. We're all persons of faith. We can only approach God by faith alone. I hope that you'll join us for the next several weeks as we study what that kind of faith looks like, why it works, why Jesus truly is the only person worthy of our trust in the ultimate sense. Would you join me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that uh, you haven't kept yourself from us. That you haven't kept your love from us or your power from us. That when we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached as it was in Acts chapter 2 to the very beginning of the church, that we see that Jesus is worthy of our faith because he loves like no one loves and he has power like no one has power. And those things together work for our good because now through the cross and the resurrection, we now have renewed access to you, God, to your blessings, to relationship with you, and it comes through faith alone. Be with us tonight as we worship and for the next several weeks as we study the book of Hebrews, a great gem, a gift from you to us, a communication of who you are, who Christ was, and what trusting in the promises of him look like in this world. It's only because of Jesus that we pray. Amen.